Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. We are in First. Peter chapter 5 today. We've been looking at what it means for a disciple to take up their cross. It's hard to do that. Let's not kid ourselves. Taking up your cross is difficult. And when we get to 1 Peter chapter 5, I think we find one of the hardest examples of all. The cross should be visible. Here's what I mean. Before we get actually into 1 Peter chapter 5, I want to look at John chapter 3 and see, I think, kind of a a foretaste of that. John chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world But men loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Just as Christ... well. Specifically, just as this statue of a snake was lifted up. And, and just my, my, my thought on this. So the people, in, the people in, in, in the days of the Exodus spoke out and grumbled against God as they did chapter after chapter. And God sent poisonous snakes among them. And when they cried out for help... Rather than just heal them or make the snakes go away, a, snake, a bronze snake was cast, put on a pole, and they had to look to the snake. I guess, why not just heal them? I think it required them to acknowledge what they had done. Looking at the snake was looking at what their crimes had brought them, looking at what their sin had done, and looking to the snake would be that reminder. And, of course, any of them could have refused to look to the snake. I don't want to do it that way, and then died from the snake bites. And the comparison is looking to the cross is the same. When we look to the cross, we see our own sin and our need. We don't have to look at the cross. But but in looking to the cross, we see that Jesus took up his cross for our sake, died for our sins, and we are to take up our cross, and it needs to be done in a way that it's lifted up, that people see. There is no such thing as private, hidden Christianity. Jesus says no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl, right? He says we put it out on the table that it can give light. If we decide to follow Christ, we are to set an example 
to others. Now, hang on, somebody says, I, I want to go to heaven. I just don't know that I want to do all of that. But here's what it means to be a follower of Christ. He needs people, us, to serve as Christ, as examples for others. Christians are called to be examples to the flock, and not just the flock, but to the world. We are called to witness Jesus to the world. So, now we're in 1 Peter chapter 5, and let's start reading. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, it would be easy for the church to hear this and say, this isn't about me. This is about four or five guys in the church and we're done. Why, why, should, I, why, why should we preach on this? Why should I pay attention to this part? This isn't for me. It's for the elders. Let's leave them to it. But I could not disagree more. Uh, and, and there's a few reasons for this, so let me, let me explain this. One of the key ingredients, qual- qualifications of, of elders, is that they should be eager to serve. Amongst our own eldership, we talk about this. And, and eager to serve for the right reasons. We, we read this. It's not about power or money or prestige or anything like that. So why should an elder serve the congregation of God, the church? Yeah. Let, me, let me tell you some insight as having done this for a few years now and, and, and by God's grace being, being third generation preacher, so seeing this in my family and, and lots, of, lots of family members, uncles and such in, in the ministry. Uh, I have known of churches that struggle with getting anyone to want to serve as elders or deacons. And, I've, and, and what I've seen increasingly around the country is an increasing struggle in leadership to get elders, just to get people to be elders. People want to attend church, but they want somebody else to have the responsibility. What's, what's more, um, it's a struggle to want to serve if everybody thinks it's their task to be devil's advocate and complain. And I know a lot of people through the country in different churches that think that God has put them in that church for the purpose of complaining about everything, that that's somehow their spiritual gift, ignoring the fact that Paul literally says in Philippians, do everything without grumbling and complaining. Apparently, that verse only applies to others and not to them. Uh, and, and if people are always going to complain about the job that the leadership is doing, and if the elders aren't getting paid for this, you can see why in some churches it's a, it's, a tough, it's a tough task sometimes to get people to want to serve in a church where the people are always complaining. Um, now, let me be clear. I, I, I'm not accusing this church of that. I think that I, this church in that regard 
has struck me as, as healthy. Um, I think that you guys are, are respectful to the elders, and I appreciate that. Um, but, but even if you weren't, God's flock needs shepherds. You know, I, this is where I feel like I, I probably could have sidetracked into the prophet Zechariah, who talks about being a shepherd and the flock hating him and despising him and treating him uh, as if he was a traitor. Uh, so, so if we don't do it for the, if elders don't do it for the benefits, why do they serve the flock? They serve because they take their example from the good shepherd. They are called shepherds, and they look to the good shepherd for their example. And again, back in Zechariah as well as now, and the shepherd loves the flock. The shepherd leaves the ninety-nine sheep to find that one lost sheep leaves the 99 behind, even though it's just one, one sheep. This good shepherd loves the flock, and the shepherds of a church love the flock on behalf of the good shepherd. Sometimes the flock bites back, but if the shepherd loves the flock, he forgives them. Sometimes the flock doesn't appreciate the shepherd, but the shepherd understands that they have a need, and they have been tasked with meeting that need. So why do I point this out? To say, hey, you guys need to be more appreciative of these guys? Um, No. To say, hey, you need to know that they love you? Well, they do, but that's actually not really my major point today. I don't, I'm not here to gain them thanks or recognition. I want future elders to hear this. Not, Not the ones that have chosen to serve. The ones that could serve and maybe don't maybe aren't interested in pursuing that. Certainly, we're, every church is just one generation away from losing all elders and deacons. Again, it, it, the, the dilemma that we have is that we have people that aren't, that they think if, if everybody else says it's somebody else's problem, somebody else can take on that responsibility, somebody else can study the Bible and, and, and spiritually lead the flock. If everybody says that, there's no church. It's just an audience. And churches around the country are struggling with the fact that everybody has prioritized other than spiritual growth, other than ministry and, and, and learning the, the Word of God so that they can share it and teach it. And if every church does that, we have a real problem. There are some people today listening that God may be calling to up their game, to dig deeper into the Word, to prioritize God, but they want it to be someone else's problem. But if everybody does that, we have no future church. One day, none of the current elders will be serving, and the next generation must love the flock. And they need to hear that the flock must be loved even when they bite back. Human People are human, right? So we all make mistakes. We all do things we regret. As the good shepherd loved his sheep and laid down his life, elders must love the flock, the flock that doesn't always love them back. Now, there are three words that we see here, and I like this passage. There are three phrases that are used interchangeably, very, very clearly here. Elders, overseers, shepherds. And we've talked about shepherds. Just a a brief note on those other two words. We know what overseer means, right? Someone who, who provides oversight and, and, and leadership. Uh, 
At the end of the day, this is not everybody gets their way. This is not everybody, uh, everybody's opinion is equally valid. Uh, likewise, eldership, which is not 100% based on age, eldership is based on maturity, experience. By eldership, we need, mean someone who has put in, now age helps if you've got extra time to dig in, but that eldership means that there is a spiritual maturity, not someone recently come to the faith, qualified leaders. Nothing is worse, uh, let me say this, nothing worse than being fought by those you love for doing God's work. And again, I don't have anyone in mind in particular, I, I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that. It is difficult to lead when no one follows. When everybody says, I know just as much about this as you do, and, but, but I'm not going to take a position of leadership. My opinion is equal. I get in, in recent years, everybody's an expert on everything. Everybody, everybody has a medical opinion, even if they didn't go to med school. Everybody's got a political opinion, even if they didn't major in political science or anything like that. Certainly everybody these days, non-Christians tell me all the time what the Bible really says and why I'm wrong. <laughs> People who've never read the Bible and never been to church, but I don't know what I'm talking about. And we, we see that's the world that we live in. But frankly, we live in that in the church as well quite a bit. That everybody, that everybody some, someone who hasn't even made it through the Bible knows that the elders are wrong, even though they've devoted their, their life to study of the Scripture. If we want to be a biblical church, which is like biblically a family, God has given us an order to it, an orderliness. My daughter is fully human, fully in the image of God, a valuable human being who does not get to pick what she gets for supper because she's nine. And used to be that we would just have to, you know, we, if we went out to a place to eat, you get your french fries for dessert because she would fill up on them only. And while chicken nuggets may not be the healthiest thing, they're better than french fries. So it was a eat your chicken first, then you can get your fries. Uh, we, re- we repeatedly have to put that discipline in her life because if she was in charge or equally in charge, it would be a mess. She wouldn't go to school. She wouldn't do her chores. She, there, there's nothing that she would, you know, she's a kid. She's going to act like a kid. In the church, in the church, there is an orderliness to this. Um, elders are biblically father figures to the church. That is God's plan. And that means that you're not always going to like all the decisions that get made. But, but I promise you, not even all the elders like all the decisions that get made. If, if the majority decide that they'll do one thing, there may be one that disagrees. I don't get everything I want in the church. But the goal isn't to, be, to get our way. The goal of the church is to be biblical. Not, not to placate the world. Not to line up with politics, not to get money. Our goal, our only goal, is to be a biblical church. And the elders 
are to lead us in that. As a final note, I'll just say in passing, elders, make sure that you set the example for the flock. Make sure that when they see you, they see what a Christian should be. If everyone in the church acted like the elders, we should ask ourselves the question, where would we be? Uh, Would anything change? There's only two kinds of people that would want to be an elder. Either those that are absolutely crazy and think, I'm a perfect example of Christianity, and everybody should be like me, or, or those who are called, who say, I'm not a perfect example of Christianity, but by the grace of God, I will do my best to set an example of Christ. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So we're supposed to be loving. We see that from the example of the elders. Love, love the flock the way that God wants the flock loved. And that's not just the elders, that's all of us. But then we read that we're supposed to be humble. Now, if you were to ask me today, what is the most difficult sin to give up? I would say pride. I think that, yes, we live in a greedy, envious gluttonous culture full of laziness and lust. But some, there is something within our current culture, especially, I think, in the U.S. In, in the 21st century, that is driven towards pride, success, and reveling in it, being up in front of everybody, being social media stars, or being on TV or the radio. Everything's about the fame and being noticed and recognized. We don't just want to be just successful. We want someone to know it. We think we're it. Now, in fairness, I don't think this is just the U.S. I just think we're in the process of perfecting it. But I look back in time and I see that Rome was like this. Babylon was like this. I'm not just picking on the U.S. They say that the first sin was Satan's pride and that every other sin derives from that. Laziness, I deserve to take, <laughs> to take it easy. L- uh, uh, lust, I deserve to have what's not mine. Frankly, that's greed and envy as well. Gluttony, I deserve to overindulge. That, that all the other sins derive from pride, and I kind of believe that. I think that pride is the worst of the sins, is kind of a root of everything. I think, therefore, humility is the hardest of virtues. When when you think you have it by nature, you don't. The minute that you think you've got it, you don't have it. So why even bother trying? And why care about humility when it's so counterculture? What's wrong with being the big shot? Or or at least earning a little well-deserved respect for hard work and effort? Can can we agree that Jesus Christ was the most humble man ever? Can can we agree on that? That that he came as a hum the creator of the universe. God in the flesh came as a humble servant, spent the first 30-ish years of his life under the radar, attracting no attention whatsoever. In three short years of ministry, mostly spent that time, you figured out on the Son of God, don't tell anyone. Had a very, at the end of the day, quiet 
low-key ministry until kind of the final week of his life. He never drew attention to himself, always pointed it towards God the Father. And see, that's our job, is to not look at ourselves. When they notice us, I don't want them to notice us. When they see us, I want them to see God. That's our job. Peter assures us that if we don't lift ourselves up, that God will. And I know that God will do a better job lifting me up than I can possibly lift up myself. I I don't want to be noticed by man. I want to be noticed by God. Only God matters. Therefore, I don't need to worry about what others think of me. I only need to worry about what God thinks of me. Oh, Jason, they'll look down on me if I show weakness, if I don't let them know who I am. I'm a person of importance. Well, their opinion doesn't matter. Let them look down on you. So what? We are called to be Christ-like and humble, knowing that this life is very temporary, very short, and eternity with God, very long and very important. And that's our goal. And we keep our eyes on that goal. And so we keep reading in verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So I remember a time in junior high, East Northport, New York. Um, I almost don't really remember what caused it. There was a guy named Rob that that challenged me to a fight after school. I don't even remember what it was. I think I tripped him in kickball. I, I legitimately think that's what, it, not on purpose. I wasn't that kind of a person. Um, challenged me to a fight after school and thought about that all day. Wasn't, wasn't a scrapper. I wasn't a fighter. Got into too many fights, but not, 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 not by choice. Showed up, at the, showed up at the playground after school. Decided I would try putting biblical practices to heart. Let him punch me two or three times, and I said, are you done? I'm going home. Did that whole turn the other cheek thing. And I can tell you what, it hurt, and I lost. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that that was the right or the wrong decision. I don't have regrets. I'm not even mad about Rob. I I hope that he is having his best life. I, I, I wasn't even mad on the way home at Rob. I wasn't sure that I had done the right thing. My face really smarted. Um... If I was vindictive, I would, be, I would be gloating in the fact that my friend Billy showed up, who I went to church with, and Billy beat the tar out of Rob. Um, I don't know that that was the right decision or not. I'm not convinced that that was. All I know is that if you are engaged in a fight and you don't fight back, it's hard to say that you won, and here's where we see this. Again, th- throw, the, throw the junior high example out. All analogies break down. The greatest lie that the devil has ever told us is that he doesn't exist. That he's just a concept, a figment of our imagination, a a representative of, of what's within us. We are quick to believe in guardian angels, which is a very hard thing to prove biblically, and quick to discount the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. 
Jesus speaks about fighting back against the devil. Satan did not fall asleep 2,000 years ago or go on vacation or lay off on his attacks. We are at war. And if we're not fighting back, we're going to get pummeled and lose and not have a lot to show for it. Now, the devil is not omnipotent. We're not in this Zoroastrian concept where good and evil are equally opposing forces. We've let too much of that Eastern mysticism get into our, into our theology where light must have dark and dark must have light. And that's great in Star Wars and other Eastern mystical things, but it's not biblical. God created everything, created Satan. Um, God is good, and if we are with God, we are good, and good will win. There's no universal, well, there must be dark with light. No, God existed for forever. He didn't need darkness. In creating us and free will, darkness exists, but one day the darkness will be banished. Satan will be overcome, but for the moment he has a little bit of power, not omnipotent, not without, not, not limitless power. Since he has limits, there's only so much he can do. And so if I were Satan and I had limited resources, I would use those resources effectively, usefully. He's got to be somewhat smart. So I would, if I were the devil, with my limited resources, attack people who are a threat to me. And people who are not a threat, I'd leave them alone. Why would I bother with them? Which is kind of good news, kind of bad news, right? If I feel like, if not even just based on feelings, if Satan's really getting at me, if, if Satan is attacking me, if Satan is attacking our church, that may be some good news. That may mean that we're a threat to him. To his, to his advancement and his, you know, the Bible calls him prince of this world. If Satan's focusing his attentions on us, when he has limited resources, I want to take pride in the fact that I'm a threat to him and he's got to do that. If he's leaving me alone, I think I'm a little bit nervous because it means I'm not a threat to him and he doesn't care what I'm up to. And so I'll, t- I'll take that good news. Let's not kid ourselves. We are at war. And there's too many Christians who don't see that this is a war. We are, at, we are at war for our very souls and the souls of, of others that God loves, that we love, I hope. People that we know and love who aren't Christian. And Satan wants to win them. And God wants them to turn to him. He doesn't force them. He uses us to, a, a, as his evangelists, as his spiritual warriors, to bring people to him. And if we don't see that this is a spiritual war, we're going to get pummeled and lose and maybe not even realize why it's happening. So we can talk about the, the Afghanistan-Iraq Middle Eastern war, conflict. I can't even figure out what. And, and here's my point on that. I don't even know what's called that. World War I was a war. And we know how it started and we know how it ended and we knew what needed to be done, and people cinched up their belts and recycled their aluminum foil and did all sorts of things to win that war. And the same with World War II. It's a very definitive start, the definitive end. We know who the bad guys were. They were definitively bad. We know who the good guys were. We know what it took, and we were all in it together as a nation. And we can see this in, in Eastern Europe right now. Russia's really starting... To, to, to not do so well as they were at the beginning because they've run out of committed troops that really wanted to win this. Now they're sending over people to fight that they don't even want to fight. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians 
are fighting for what they see as their country, and they're starting to make some serious inroads back because while Russia loses its interest as its citizens are not getting the quick victory they were promised, and the Ukrainians are still fighting for what is very dear to them, just in real-world time, we see, we're seeing what happens when one side really wants to win and one side is kind of half-heartedly trying to do this. The reason I think this whole Iraq-Afghanistan was such a mess is while I, I think that our troops had their hearts in it, I'm not 100% convinced we here in the U.S. did. I don't know that we made sac- It didn't feel like we were making sacrifices to win the war. We were just going on life as normal. And I think that became a very difficult conflict to, to, to definitively win for a number of reasons. But I think one was that I, after, what, 20 years of it, I think that we had people that didn't even know that we were fighting over there. Spiritually, this is our problem. I, we send our missionaries overseas, and I don't know that we really care. I don't know that we pray for them. I don't know that we realize that what they're doing is frontline evangelistic spiritual warfare work that, that matters. Missionaries are being sent overseas, and they're dying for the gospel. And, and I don't know that we're sacrificing here at home in that same way. Time, prayer, finances, whatever the case may be. I don't, I don't know that our hearts are in it to win it. We're in the fight of our lives. And I think a lot of us want to take it easy. I, I do. I go back to the, some of those deadly sins. Sloth is a very attractive one to me. I'd love nothing more than to sit on a sofa all day and read science fiction. But, but that's not what God has called any of us to. Unless we intend to be casualties, we need to wake up, be ready, recognize that we're in a spiritual fight, and take it seriously. Be alert and self-controlled. Because our enemy is fighting us whether or not we're fighting back. Oh, Satan won't attack me. I don't want to fight him. Well, then, then we're not part of the solution. We are part of the Christian army is what we're called to be, and that means fighting back. Our hymn of invitation is hymn number 256, but let's, as we've read the whole book so far, let's, let's close with the last two or three verses. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother... I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Stand stand fast. Greet one another in love. Back then, kiss of love doesn't have to be a literal kiss, but be loving. Stand fast, be loving, hold the faith, show the love of Christ. We are called to be loving and humble, but no less soldiers of the cross. We are in a spiritual war, and thinking that it's someone else's job to fight is a great way to get hurt or worse. Let us then be self-controlled and alert as well as humble and loving. Let's look to Christ. If you haven't committed your life, to Christ and what that entails and what that looks like. I would like to talk with you after church. If you have any questions about maybe I have, maybe I haven't, what does it mean to be a Christian? We, we really should talk. That matters. Let's talk after church. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.